This is a special Uncommon Sense podcast for 3 FM with Amy Mullins. The interview you're about to hear is with Eleanor Gordon-Smith. Eleanor is a philosopher and writer and came in to talk about her new book, Stop Being Reasonable. We discuss the features and limits of rational argument and what really changes people's minds. I'm delighted now to have with me in the studio writer and radio producer Eleanor Gordon-Smith. And Eleanor is uh, also the author of a new book and it's called Stop Being Reasonable, which is out through New South Books. And she has come all the way from America to uh, do a bit of a book tour and uh, do some interviews. So I welcome Eleanor now. Hi there. Thank you so much. Hello. Hi. It's great to have you and to talk about some pretty big issues. Yeah. In a, That's the hope. Well, we often don't really get to sit back and have moments of reflection that are, I guess, structured mm. And, it's, and that's what I think philosophy often has given me is mm. a, different frames to explore ideas and mm. hopefully not feel too lost mm. when the questions are so big. Obviously, in the title, it's Stop Being Reasonable. So we're talking about rationality and argument and decision-making and beliefs and selfhood and what we perceived to be our narrative in life. So I'm looking forward to discussing all of these issues with you. But first up, let's talk about where you're coming from and your skill set and interests. (laughs) As you open in this book, you talk about the fact that you were an avid debater Mm. throughout your childhood and um, were obviously very much engaged at the highest levels, particularly in high school. Mm. What drew you to this area or field that is quite argumentative because debating is one team versus another to win an argument what first drew you in to debating and and that style of um exploring ideas yeah uh it's a good question i before i was in philosophy where i am now i think that like all along in my life i had a bit of a taste for arguments and their construction like i liked looking at things in an architectural way and seeing, like, which bits of the argument are hanging together in which ways. And obviously that's something that's, like, really big in academic philosophy where I am now. But when I was a kid, the nearest thing that you have that expresses that is debating. And honestly, I mean, I wish I had a more sophisticated explanation for why I got interested in it. I I know why I was interested in it when I was older. But when I started, I was in, like, year five, which is super young, and I think it was just, it was a stage. Like I liked being on stage and you know, I was a really like applause hungry kid. And, and it was an opportunity to, to be talking in front of people. Mm. And then obviously I started to learn more about it and it became important to me in a variety of different ways to the point that by the time I was sort of 16 or 17, I was like, I could take or leave the audience, honestly. Like it doesn't really matter to me that I'm on stage. What matters to me is that I'm with my teammates who are so intelligent and we're sitting in a room for an hour together and trying to come up with arguments. It was just like intellectual brain food, you know? Mm, Yeah. And so when you got to university, Mm. what kind of areas did you think you would be pursuing? Because often people, you know, in that transition between high school and university, you only get exposed to a set kind of range of ideas and subjects at high school and then at university that just feels like there's a whole other world of yeah. opportunity or possibility what was your experience I mean I wish I had I had been a little more like a horizon expandy honestly when I got to university I just did more debating for like <laughs> the first couple of years um I then started to get sort of bored with my government and politics degree I think when you're a debater, a lot of the time when you're growing up, people are like, oh, you'll be in law, you'll be in politics, like, oh, you're going to be a prime minister. And you just sort of vacuum that up Mm. and think that is indeed what I will do with my life, I guess, because you've told me so. Um, So that was what I thought I would do with my life. Um, And I, I, if I look at my life now and I try to imagine like telling my previous self that I would drop all politics, government and rigorous argumentation in, in the kind of public sphere and then I would become way more interested in like reporting people's stories and working in academic philosophy it just wouldn't seem plausible but I mean I guess you know a bunch of stuff changed and I think it changed by accident I think that's often how the big things in our lives change is that they just sort of sneak up on you Mm. and one day I had a unit to fill inside my degree and I went to a philosophy class and I sat in it and I was like oh like I get it this is why everything else feels unsatisfying because everything else is trying to provide answers 
and philosophy is trying to ask more questions. That's one of the things I find most frustrating about philosophy (laughs) (laughs) is that there are so many questions and when you ask one question, there are like a million questions that Uh follow. And they all unravel. Mm -hmm. And so I often have this tension for myself when I studied philosophy between wanting to ask big questions because you clearly need to have thought of it to get to an answer, a, a meaningful, useful answer. But then again, I didn't want to be just asking questions for questions sake and then never reaching an answer yeah even if the answer is only a temporary one that I might like change or expand on in the future that's interesting yeah it's really interesting I'm the exact opposite I really like the space where you don't have an answer and I have always kind of felt like I'm hungry for answers and so I sort of have to resist that it feels like a kind of self-discipline to be like well but you don't know the answer you could pick one, you could just flip a coin and decide to believe something. But like the reality is you actually don't have a satisfying answer. So you should like do yourself the service of sitting in not knowing. And I think I always found that super satisfying, especially coming off the back of a life where, you know, I'd spent so long proffering answers in various speeches and academic environments to suddenly be allowed, as it were, to be like, I just don't, I don't know. I don't know. It's a hard question. People have been asking it for 2,000 years. I don't know. Here's my best guess. So here's a new way of formulating the question. That felt like a huge freedom. Mm, I can see how that would be quite liberating, yeah, given yeah. that you've constantly had the expectation to provide an answer, mm. whether or not the answer was always to your satisfaction. Totally. Yeah. Uh, I definitely don't think there should be an answer for answer's sake because that just feels really yeah, it feels useless. Yeah. So um, philosophy, obviously is a really great way to change your thinking and look at the world in different ways. And that to me has been very useful. Mm. For you, you are now undertaking postgraduate studies Mm -hmm. in philosophy Mm -hmm. in America Mm -hmm. over at Princeton University. So how did you move into philosophy or decide that this was something that was going to be worthwhile for you as a professional pursuit because a lot of people might enjoy it but then not take the next step or feel quite daunted perhaps yeah, yeah, yeah. to to actually really confidently stake yourself into philosophy yeah. and it has traditionally been quite male dominated oh and totally yeah that it's not always been that welcoming I was really lucky on two counts one was I just grew up with a lot of boys and a lot of jousting And it wasn't until I was like in my sort of mid to late 20s that I started to be like, oh, I said late 20s. I'm still in the mids. You know what I mean? (laughs) It wasn't until I was quite old that I was like, oh, like this whole time I've been violating gender norms. Like, whoops. (laughs) I just, I was spared that realization for quite a long time. So I always felt really unnaturally comfortable in that kind of male dominated jousty environment. Now I look at it and I can see why it's sort of obnoxious or boorish or excludes other people but I was very lucky to be just not cognizant of that Mm. it just kind of glanced off me or I was like yeah fun let's fight you want to fight let's fight (laughs) um so that was good that that was a thing on which I got lucky the other thing I got lucky about that explained why I took it any further than just doing a degree was I had wonderful teachers and people who knew that I was working in radio at the same time as I was doing my undergraduate and knew that I was sort of on the edge of like leaving uni and just felt like public facing work was more important. And I was like, what's the point of academia? I just want to go and do like reporting and and keep doing radio work. And they were very sweet about saying to me, you know, like you're good. You should keep doing this. And like, I, I think that you should, I think that you have the talent and, and also that it would be, I mean, like it feels weird to repeat compliments, but they were like, it feels like you could do something important if you kept working in this area and that's nice it's really Mm. and you know everyone has that one teacher and and I had about three of them and it was a real blessing it is I think well to have that from you know an academic totally is a massive compliment you know so basically we get to this book Mm -hmm. it's pretty unique to be writing a book in your 20s I think it's a great thing thank you um so congratulations and Really, I'm interested. <laughs> While in grad school too, which was a yeah, bit. <laughs> I was going to say the workload how does, was heavy. How does one actually? Yeah. I mean, I'm just one of those people. Like I just like. Do you I sleep? Just, <laughs> I just, I do actually. I sleep a lot. I think sleep is important. I kind yeah. of don't really care for this like workaholic culture where people are just like measuring the size of their intellectual biceps by like, oh, I was in the office till four in the morning. It's mm. like, well, okay, great. So now you're underslept and you're not functioning. Like, yes. good for you. <laughs> um, yeah, no, I, I, I think sleep's important, but I also think that. 
you know, if you're lucky enough, like I am, to be doing graduate school and in a position to be thinking really deeply about something and to be kind of working on your own terms. Like, I don't have a boss. That's amazing. Like, mm. so few people are in that position. I just feel like really lucky and I feel like I have to do something with all that luck. That's a really great way of putting it. Thank you. Let's move into the book and how you got to the idea of writing the book. It is pretty unique, I guess, in terms of the subject matter and the way that you've approached it. Uh, And given that, as you said, you've worked in radio, you're very much interested in speaking to people and having a very practical focus as well. Mm. I'm interested to hear more about the story that you did for radio on This American Life, which Mm. led you to this book. And as you said, I think it was in the was it at the end of the book you were saying that it kind of evolved? Like yeah. it, you you still changed what it might be about mm. whilst you were writing it. Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah. Okay, so what the book is now is it's a series of true stories about people who changed their minds in high-stakes ways where they really started to lose something. Like the thing that they were changing their mind about was something that was bedrock to the way that they saw themselves or the way that they saw the world. And I wanted to go and interview those people as a philosopher, but also as a reporter and say like, hey, what happened in that moment where everything that you had believed really strongly crumbled? And what was it like to go through that? Was it like a grief process? Was it an awakening? Like, what did it feel like? But then more importantly for like my academic background, I wanted to take those true stories, many of which were super moving, and pair them with philosophical questions about what it is to be reasonable, what it is to be rational, and what their stories could teach us about what a quote-unquote like good change of mind really looks like. So that's where it ended up. It started because I did this radio program for This American Life where I walked around the streets of King's Cross in Sydney's like party slash nightlife district. It used to be before they changed all the laws and you can't buy alcohol there. But time was, it was a bit of a like rowdy environment. And I it walked It is around. a little bit seedy too. It's still, it's still seedy. It's just like there's six people, but all six of them are seedy, you know? Yeah. Like it's lost the life, but it hasn't lost the grossness. Um, <laughs> so I would walk around there with a microphone and a recorder and I would wait to be catcalled and sort of generally harassed, which obviously happened fairly frequently and I would turn around to those guys and I would say like hey what did you just say and like sincerely I'm curious please help me understand Mm. what were you hoping for like how like what really when you go home and look in the mirror and you're like gonna catcall today what are you thinking what is it in your mind that makes you think that's fun or something you want to do and I spent a couple weeks doing that and the ultimate aim of that project had been I'll get one of these guys and I'll sit down with them and I'll talk for like an hour and I'll get them to change their mind about catcalling. So the the radio program wound up being a sort of collage of the conversations that I'd had with people and in none of them was I successful at changing someone's mind. Yeah, I listened back to parts of it and mm. heard some of the very Aussie yeah. guys that you spoke to. <laughs> yeah. Um, and I mean... Some of them, it seemed like, were kind of a bit like show-offs, you know. Yeah, they had totally. a very flamboyant or outgoing character or persona mm. on the street. And mm-hmm. and a lot of... I, I certainly have been in a similar kind of situation where you do come across those men who are kind of like... They'll often do it in a really f- overly f- smiley, friendly totally. way. Like, you know, and they perceive it to be a real compliment that... Mm-hmm. And, and that they're really trying to kind of bestow upon you some yeah. really positive sentiment. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Was that the main kind of reason or were there other reasons that they were hoping for? Like were they trying to get some kind of attention or like have, yeah. get a relationship out of it? I or? mean, it was, it was all of those. I was kind of surprised. I had hoped that when I went and talked to them and just like held out a microphone and said, why do you do this? that some kind of consistent motivation would come through. And in fact, what came through was that every single guy I spoke to had a broadly different way of explaining why they thought this was a cool thing to do. Some of them said, you know, I think I just do this for like a pack mentality. I think I'm just doing it for the guys around me. Like, honestly, it's more about my friends than it is about you. Uh, Some of them said, apparently, totally sincerely, like, I'm trying to meet someone. I'm trying to meet a, a girl. And at least this way, I'm getting her attention. And then some of them were just like, yeah, I really don't know. <laughs> Some of them were like, actually, I can't tell you. I'm just in the habit at this point. So yeah, it was kind right. of a, a sort of inconsistent mishmash of motivations. Mm. And it shows that really you can't assume someone's motivation totally. 
for anything. Yeah, I sort of had expected that they would be more transparent with themselves about why they were doing what they were doing but I guess I guess very often people do things for reasons that they don't understand. Mm. So you had a lot of in-depth conversations with people mm. men mm. on the street women didn't catcall you no, did they you'd be amazed to hear no no <laughs> so I wish they would that would be fun <laughs> like to meet a lady like that yeah, yeah. <laughs> In terms of some of the men, like I know that you, there was two men or friends that you spoke to. I think it was Zach and Mike. Zach and, yeah. yeah. And they were um, really keen to talk. And I think you spoke maybe twice, was it? Yeah. Well, I spoke to Zach twice. Yeah. Zach and Mike was the one off. Yeah. And not only was it catcalling, it was a tap or a slap on the butt. Yeah. So. This was super interesting. I mean, I should be clear, like, I really liked these guys. And part of me still is like, I feel like I sort of did them dirty by putting them on the radio, but it's like you know they knew what they they know what a recorder is, they know what a microphone is, they know what a journalist is, and like they did in fact say all these things. So you know, <laughs> I have to remind yeah. myself that I'm not the node of blame for the fact that people now know that they think those things because they do think those things, and they said that they thought those things. What they said they thought was like not only is it fun to yell compliments at women, but it's fun to run out behind a group of girls and like smack one of them like hard on the bum and then bum feels so trivializing but it's what they said Mm. and that this was like a fun way of getting her attention and it was only when I went home with that tape to one of the producers of This American Life and I was like oh hey like I spoke to these guys which was you know we've been doing this for dozens of nights at this point Uh, and they listened to the tape and they were like uh that's assault (laughs) like that's really serious and I hadn't really clocked that it mattered uh, as much as I think they thought that it did. And obviously they were right. Um, But, yeah, I I spoke to them quite a lot and I went back to talk to Zach on a weekday when he wasn't with his friends and when it wasn't, you know, rabble-rousy night-type culture. And I spoke to him for, like, 90 minutes, just us one-on-one sober in the daytime. And that's the conversation that went to air in full that's like all all sort of half hour of the show was basically that uninterrupted conversation and yeah I got him to to commit to not slapping people anymore but I couldn't I could not get him to change his mind about actual catcalling and clearly you're engaging there in I guess a rational argument you're trying to say well surely I can convince them that this is something that most women would not welcome or enjoy. And even if you think they are, they're probably being polite or trying to protect themselves in some way from a potentially threatening situation. Mm. And um, I was really interested that you highlighted that a lot of the men would say, yeah, but you're not speaking for all women. Yeah. What, What about the others? You know, surely, surely there are women out there based on my positive response that I've seen like Mm. the vocal tone or the body language of women who respond back to me yeah and this is where the philosophy kicks in and this is what I try to do in the chapter of the book that deals with this is I was watching this amazing philosophical thing play out where two things were happening one we both had the same piece of evidence but we're moving it in completely different directions. And two, there was this whole economy of credibility and who was worth believing that was kind of operating underneath what we were each saying. So the evidence thing was, you know, they would say, well, no, of course women like it. Like, of course women enjoy it. Like, I've seen them. They're smiling, they're laughing, they're shouting back, you know, and they've got this positive expression on their face. And I was saying... Yeah, I know that expression. I've done that expression a lot. That's an expression of, I can't be bothered to fight this. I can't be bothered to earn a reputation as a difficult woman. I can't be bothered right now to get told off or get into an argument with some guy who's going to tell me to smile more. Mm. Like, fine, you want me to look like I'm enjoying myself. You want to have this fiction. Fine, it is the path of least resistance for me to smile and laugh. So I'll do it. And it's kind of horrible and dishonest and a disservice to yourself. But what I hadn't realised was... It's honestly putting sort of quote-unquote evidence out there for them. So I was looking at that piece of evidence and seeing really strong conclusion that these women are uncomfortable. They're looking at the same piece of evidence and concluding these women are loving it. And that was so philosophically interesting to me as well in terms of what do I do to make them see that my conclusion is rational and theirs isn't because both of us think we're reacting to evidence. And then the other thing that happened in that conversation was – as you say, they would say you can't you can't speak for all women. 
which was so interesting to me because, as was pointed out to me afterwards, like as though they can, you know what I mean? Mm. Like as though they're a better authority on what other women think than, than I am. Um, and to be clear, I don't think that I am an authority what, on what all women think. There are plenty of women who do enjoy catcalling. I just thought it was strange that I was the only one in the conversation who didn't know what other women were thinking, whereas these guys mm. did. And it was another really philosophically interesting thing for me to look at the fact that I think the mechanism there was one of credibility. You know, I I mentioned like an economy of credibility. I think what was happening was they just looked at me and it wasn't even what I was saying. It was the fact that it was me who was saying it. And they looked at me as a woman who was a journalist and kind of I have like nerdy glasses and like tortoiseshell frames on my face and I have like mousy brown hair and, (laughs) and here I am trying to have this argument with them instead of like coming out for a drink I think they just saw that person and they were like yeah of course you think it's not fun because a you're a woman and b you're a fun sponge and that just meant that the words themselves didn't matter it was like the mouth that they were coming out of that that mattered yeah and you highlight this whole issue around testimony and mm. uh, what was really interesting is you, that you say what is the picture of evidence here such that testimony doesn't count why is it that for any other criminal act testimony and the balance of probability make it rational to believe that guy did it but in this case they do not and you're talking about sexual assault allegations mm. Mm. and you know there's been many great examples of that but particularly Brett Kavanagh mm-hmm. and Christine Blasey Ford yeah and that situation where you know she was very calm mm-hmm. and mild-mannered and respectful and very sober I guess in the way she spoke Mm -hmm. and at the testimony and then we saw um, Brett Kavanaugh who was looking to become the next judge on the Supreme Court bench in America you know being very emotional not particularly rational or at least he was Mm -hmm. very um, reactive. Yeah yeah I mean there's a fantastic book um, by Suraj Mali called um, Women's Rage or the Power of Women's Anger and she noted when it was sort of, I mean, it was good luck for her publicity, but it was really sad that this happened, that the book sort of coincided with, with that time. And she pointed out, like, that's a man who yelled on national TV, talked about how much he liked beer, cried, accused his questioners of themselves being alcoholics, and he struck millions of people as more credible than she did when she did everything right that you're meant to do as a sober rational witness and it was yeah it was one of those moments that that made really vivid for me the fact that you know you you read that the quote which was you know what do we think evidence is when we say and that's you know again it's a philosophical question it's it's why i think philosophy is useful for these things it's why i wanted to write a book in part coming from my own philosophical background was you know when people say yeah, but she didn't give us any evidence to believe what she's saying. Like, she didn't give us any reason to believe what she's saying. I'm like, mm-hmm. why do you think that what she's saying is itself not evidence? Like, what evidence are you waiting for? I mean, I know the answer to that is, you know, DNA things or other eyewitness testimonies or whatever. But the opening bid seemed to be, yeah, well, all we have is that she's said something and that's not evidence. And it was like, why not? Because in so many other parts of our life, the fact that someone said something is perfectly good grounds to believe it. You know, like I say, where's the train station? You say it's down there and to the left. Great. That's evidence on which I act. You know, Mm. you have given me some testimony which seems to function like evidence. So why is it that in these extraordinarily high stakes situations, suddenly we seem to adopt the philosophical view that testimony is not evidence it was very peculiar Mm, it is peculiar philosophers were really in a tangle that week a lot of it was i was on campus watching a lot of the hearings and the confidence with which people were like oh but we don't have any evidence for this and people were like testimony is evidence (laughs) yeah exactly witness testimony yeah someone yeah who was actually the person in question who experienced the Mm. alleged assault Mm. i mean obviously there's cases where that goes wrong and obviously it needs to be tempered but it just was one of those scenarios where i see people stating with a certainty that they have not earned something that they think is a deep philosophical truth that i know to be questionable and so one of the things that makes this whole discussion about what is reason and what is rationality Mm. and are we really arguing with rationality when we have public debates about 
important issues like climate change or um, tax and who should be taxed more. There are so many areas that we think that we can have this kind of contest of ideas where the best ideas win and we have to have it out in the open so that everyone can see it, make up their own minds based on the evidence and the arguments that are put forward. Mm. And to an extent, it can work. I mean, there are so many interesting examples. Like if I think of the best debater who's using what and we'll get to what is reason or rationality in a second. But one of the people that springs to mind is Christopher Hitchens mm. because he spent his life debating people. He's so good. Isn't he? And he, like, whenever I watch a debate, and I sometimes just went through the whole YouTube and just watched all of them, mm. when he would, you know, argue with Tony Blair, for example, about God and religion mm. and whether it was real or not. And I just felt like he was one of those people to me where I could see that there was some kind of commitment to rational debate and that, to me, I think he could potentially sway people, but I always admired his oh, skill and, yeah, uh, and, yeah scepticism. It just seemed so eminently sensible, the way that he said things. Yeah. And I wonder what, you know, someone who is really effective like Christopher Hitchens was in terms of talking about issues of public importance that have a moral or ethical frame like to you when you're thinking about rationality and reason and whether we do even have any form of rational debate in public discourse Mm. what would you say about someone like Christopher Hitchens who pretty much that was his whole bread and butter I guess yeah what an interesting question um so the title is stop being reasonable and what I mean by that is not let's cease using reason or rationality What I mean by that is, like, stop using the notion of rationality that you currently have because in public, at least, I think what we take rationality to be has been kind of stripped bare and, like, denuded of a lot of what makes us people. And often, you know, the kind of thing that you'll see people doing in the name of rationality is really peculiar. Like, I live in America. There's a lot of Silicon Valley-type rationality which seems to involve drinking a whole lot of protein powder and optimising <laughs> endlessly and, like, keeping track of every minute in your day and making sure it's maximally productive. It's like what people take rationality to be is, like, a march towards a literally non-human future. It's like mm. a robotic, like, if I can turn myself into a robot, then hooray, I've been rational. Um, so that's kind of the title. And, in fact, the first... The introduction title is Everything Was Protein Powder and Nothing Hurt, which is a sort of tongue-in-cheek way of of mocking precisely that picture of rationality. And someone like Hitch, I think, is such a good model of what actually rich, rational persuasion looks like. Because you'll notice with, with a truly great orator and the things that I found attractive in public speaking when I was a kid, you know, they're not doing that weird, denuded version of reality of reality of rationality Mm. they're doing a version which acknowledges and proceeds from you're a human and i'm a human and i'm talking to you and i am at liberty therefore you know this is in like aristotle's rhetoric like people have known this for thousands of years when you're an orator you're at liberty to use things like how your audience is feeling how they're seeing themselves how they are seeing you which narratives they're thinking in line with who they trust like all those things are admissible to a truly great persuasive speech but then what's weird is as someone who was once you know kind of good at persuasive speaking nowhere on par with christian but you know kind of like i could i could bend my way around an argument people often look at that and feel like Oh, you're manipulating me. Like, ah, your, your, your use of oratory is short-circuiting my rational brain and you shouldn't manipulate me like that. And there's a sort of mistrust of people like Hitchens and people who are good with words as though what they're doing by appealing to our humanness is underhanded or, like, sneaky in some way. And that's so weird to me because mm. it's like in order to think that a good orator is manipulating you, you have to think that the things they're appealing to, like emotion and your sense of self, are not rational and don't belong in your decision-making. So that's, like, that's the only way you can make those, pol- those polls connect is to mm. be like, you're manipulating me because the things you're appealing to don't belong in my decision-making, which is a bizarre thing to think, I think. Yeah. So there is a role for empathy and elements of the human existence of I think what so. makes us unique. I think so. And that's that's sort of the guiding thesis of the book, you know, is that we 
owe it to ourselves, we owe it to each other, we owe it to the philosophical richness of a lot of these concepts to be more capacious in what we take rationality to be. And I think that there are very good arguments, philosophical and, you know, just from, on the basis of the people that I spoke to, like things that came out of my conversations with these wonderful sharing people who were so open with me about the moments that they changed their minds. You know, there are real lessons about the fact that what it is to be reasonable might be much more capacious than we've imagined. We'll get to some of those examples in a minute. But before we do that, I want to kind of just close off this discussion about what is being reasonable, Mm. which is really the first chapter, I guess, Mm. of this book. And it was really interesting to me that you were highlighting some things that we probably don't question very often, which is what exactly is being rational when you're having a public debate. And Mm. you said that you teach ethics at university and a lot of people will say, well, everyone's entitled to their opinion and that's important in public debate and that rationality and free speech and liberty is often tied up together Mm -hmm. and it can be a little bit messy. You refer to John Stuart Mill and his um, writing about In On Liberty, which I found also really useful. But a lot of those thinkers were saying, you know, in order to get to truth, we need to have these discussions out in the open and then anyone watching will be able to see a fallacious argument and they'll see something that's wrong and then we'll improve as a society because we'll have gotten further. And you highlight the fact that actually the media is driven by having not particularly nuanced debates and that they're driven by entertainment and you've Mm -hmm. written about that in previous essays as well. And I was really interested... What did you do in your homework? I know. (laughs) I I am the ultimate nerd as well. Um, But, yeah, to me, I was really interested because I've always been committed to that idea of having a public Uh argument in the style of Christopher Hitchens' um, might and, you know, to thrash out those ideas because I myself, if someone gives me a good argument and it challenges my beliefs, I'm very open to changing. Yeah, yeah. And I wondered whether that's not really the norm because you're talking about in this book, well, Mm. there are a whole other range of factors like emotion Mm. and personhood and narrative that also influence the way people perceive arguments and words Mm. and that often someone making an argument will have their words kind of taken from them, like that they don't have control over how they're perceived and grasped and that that often means that women or people in minority groups don't have the same influence or control over their arguments like someone like Christopher Hitchens might have given his background, which was quite privileged. Yeah, yeah, yeah. This is a really important thing for us to think about right now. I feel like so... Let me start with the hope and sort of the fantasy that I'm hoping the book explores a little bit more. The fantasy is is the one that you've just referenced, which is if we only clash ideas, then we'll be fine. You know, like if we enter into what I call this gladiatorial contest of ideas where it's meant to be combat it's meant to be like well you you think that's true sure i think this thing is true let's put our notions of truth up against each other and they'll fight and one of them will win that idea is hundreds if not thousands of years old it is in every major treatise about free speech about freedom about democracy about about sort of man's progress towards truth because it was always man at the time um this notion is such a good It's almost like narcotic, you know. It's such a Mm. good thing to think because if it was true, it would be fantastic. Like all we would need to make honest progress towards the truth would be to clash ideas with each other. That's a fantastic thing. Like if that's true, then getting truth is amazingly easy and we can sort of just rest easy. Like what a nice thing to be able to think. But, you know, as you allude to, there, there are reasons why I think that is in part a fantasy. I don't think it's always a fantasy. I think that I'm still really committed to the idea that if we clash ideas, some of us will get to the truth some of the time. And I certainly don't think that there is no place in public for that kind of rigorous argumentation. I think it's really important. I just also think that some of the hope 
that we pinned on that idea might have been misplaced. So, you know, there's this there's this phenomenon of who we believe rather than what we believe. And there is an undeniable fact that the credibility that you give someone plays into whether you believe what they're saying. It's not just the quality of their arguments. It's the person who is doing the talking. And that can go both ways. That can mean that, you know, there's a really rich and quite beautiful way that people can access the truth via the people that they trust and that they love. You know, there's a way that our relationships can play an important role in bringing us to the truth. But then there's also a, a darker side, which is that, you know, like like all economies, it can go wrong for some people. And that economy of credibility can disadvantage people who are disadvantaged all the time, people who are, you know, not from around here or people whose skin is darker than mine or people who are a gender that I think is not particularly credible or insightful or likely to be intelligent. And all those things add up to mean that some speakers can arrive in this uh, this clash of ideas and they can do their job perfectly fine. Like they can make the right argument, they can give you the right premises and the net effect is not that their opponent or anyone watching the the clash thinks, oh, that's a good point. The net effect is that for reasons completely beyond their control, their very good argument just disappears from the scoreboard. And that's something that, um, you know, that's not original to me. That's that's feminist philosophers have been saying that for years. You'd be amazed to hear they're not listened to. Um, <laughs> so, you know, that's people like Miranda Fricker and Ray Langton have been talking about and like Jose Medina have been talking about that for a really long time. And I think it really puts the lie to a lot of our hope that debate alone will bring us closer to the truth. Yeah. And using women as an example, certainly once you get to your mid-20s, you are quite aware that you're received in a different way than what you might have hoped, which is just, in my personal experience, I wrote about Australian politics and I did so under a pseudonym and I was received one way when I was writing. Oh, isn't that interesting? Yeah. And I didn't say what gender I was. I yeah. just wrote and wanted my ideas to stand alone because yeah. of that very reason about all the kind of perceptions and lens and biases that get thrown onto your words and arguments. Mm-hmm. And then when I finally was a published writer under my own name, I had a totally other other experience and people would treat mm-hmm. me as if I was arguing from a place of emotion. And, and they sent you a lot of emails with unsolicited feedback. Yes. And gendered feedback Asking too. you to dinner in the same email. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I think your work is bad, but do you want to date me? Yeah. Well, and it was, it's kind of off-putting. It's really off-putting. Really off-putting, yeah. yeah, because then you just think, well, what's the point? I, I yeah. feel like I should be taken seriously totally. for my own arguments and mind. Yeah. So, yeah, it is quite disheartening. I can see how that does affect things. But if you're from a position where, you know, you're in the majority or you're part of the system that is perpetuating it, yeah. then you're probably not as aware of the kind of dynamics or biases that are really happening when we have these public debates or discourses or totally and that's kind of that's exactly the sort of person that i'm hoping the book will talk to is the the person who is really committed to being reasonable in public and that debate and the clash of ideas and the removal and sanitization of the personal that that is the way that we get closer to the truth because i I think you know i used to be one of those people and i think those people are really useful like warriors for persuasion in a time where we need them a lot so i'm hoping that you know the books the book sort of main message of be reasonable and fight for truth by all means but let's be a little more open in our vision about what that actually entails i'm really hoping to speak to those people and to Mm. be saying like look you know you know that hope that you had that you knew already what it was to be reasonable like maybe let some more stuff in let's go to some of the illustrations there are a lot to pick from really out there (laughs) i think two that stood out to me the most was uh, the first one that you're talking about dylan and missy so that i found really interesting because of the fact that it wasn't about trying to change people's minds based on the arguments or their actual beliefs. Mm-hmm. Like, you know, if we're talking about religion, does God exist? Is the apocalypse really going to happen? Are all these things based in fact or evidence? Where's your proof? Yeah. It was actually, as you've said, who is delivering it? Who is actually saying it? And what the person thinks of their credibility and their rationality yeah. and their insight, their actual insight into these totally. topics. How, 
when it's not about the actual facts or the arguments themselves or the beliefs themselves, which often we think that is how you change someone's mind, Mm. when it's about because that person said it, how do you challenge someone, particularly when it is something like politics and it's not like, oh, you don't believe in climate change, here's all the evidence. Yeah. It's not, well, these are the the points or my beliefs based on the evidence. It's actually like, no, but these people said it and I believe them because it's... It's them. Yeah, it's them. Mm. Yeah, this is exactly the question that I think the story raised. So... So Dylan was born into a cult when he was a really when he was really young because that's the age at which you tend to be born. Um, so he was born into a cult and he was raised in it for twenty five years. He'd never spoken to anyone who was outside it really in any kind of serious way. He was in the cult sort of like really full bloodedly, like he was committed to it. He believed the things that they told him to believe, and those were things like you know as you say like the apocalypse is coming and like there's this whole weird host of things that like everyday objects instantiate satan and you have to be real careful about them uh and you can't have certain medical treatments it was really like a fringe Mm. um and he met missy when they were both working at a restaurant and sort of immediately fell in love and as a reporter one of the things that's difficult about interviewing them is that they just don't like talk in separate sentences they're just like so fused and so in love still that they sort of only interview as a fused item (laughs) um and what happened was missy committed to herself that she was going to change dylan's mind about his beliefs about this cult and and she was going to get him out of this cult she married him she had kids with him before he changed his mind but she was still sort of chugging through life committed to the idea that she was ultimately going to change his mind and the way that she said about changing his mind was i'm going to pretend that I believe what these people believe. I'm going to sort of infiltrate in like a black ops thing. I'm going to go in and pretend to be open to being baptized and I'm going to go along to like worship and I'll sing the songs and I'll read the texts and I'll do the scripture things. And she had a five-year plan for changing his mind and it took seven years. And there was a moment, which I won't disclose in its entirety, you can read in the book, uh, (laughs) there was a moment where, you know, Dylan had to choose between the cult and his wife and he realized that, Actually, he believed his wife more than he believed the cult. And that raises exactly the question that you've just asked, which is like, well, how do we leverage that in more political, less extreme ways? I think the insight from that was that both when Dylan believed the cult and when he believed his wife, precisely as you say, what he was doing was not believing what they said on the face of what they said it was the fact that they were the people who'd said it and i think it's important to recognize that there are times where that can be rational right there are times where believing what people tell you on the basis of the fact that it's them is a perfectly good probability judgment like Mm. that's a person who i trust they're likely to be right i believe it on the basis of what they've said and you need to yeah because as you say in another one if it was with your relationships for example you'd end up being this very paranoid person who could never have an open trusting relationship exactly like so much of our daily wonderful life depends on believing what we're told so that's not what's wrong with what dylan did there's a sort of different question about what's wrong with what you know the way that dylan was structuring his beliefs i think the answer about you know how we can use that in political cases and in cases where you're trying to get someone to see the evidence is i think you've got to get to know why like what is it about the people that they're believing that is important to them where does the trust in them come from because very often it's not just I think they're right about what they're talking about. Very often the trust that we place in people has a lot to do with, you know, how do they make me feel and what narratives do they let me think about myself? And if you want to displace the beliefs that arise from that trust, you have to displace the trust itself. And that can be complicated. But you're also, if I'm trying to argue you out of trusting someone, I'm allowed to use certain things that I'm not allowed to use if I'm arguing you out of a belief, right? Like if I'm trying to get you to believe that this person's not trustworthy, then I can say all sorts of things about them and it's relevant and it's rational because you shouldn't be trusting them and that's worth keeping in mind, I mm. think. It's such a challenge nowadays as well because of the polarisation of views yeah. politically. It's getting worse, I think. Mm-hmm. Um, and we are having more of these debates out in the open yeah. in different platforms which have their positives and negatives. Like all things, yeah. Yeah, but one of the things you pick up on there is about narrative and about who 
a person is and Mm. that often what they believe and what they think is rational is tied to their sense of self and maybe it's not often questioned because we're constantly building a narrative in our mind and you really I loved the part where you were talking about how it's quite self-reinforcing and cyclical and so if you have a narrative of yourself you often then act out that narrative and it becomes this self-fulfilling prophecy and how do you have a circuit breaker and what happens when you might actually break the circuit and Mm. the great example is Alex's story and I was just so yeah. Isn't it great? It really is awesome. <laughs> one of the best ones. And he's in Australia, it's which fun, is even yeah. funnier. It's one, of the, it's one of the only fun ones. Though. Let's get yeah, a little <laughs> they are. Yeah, exactly. And so I was just wondering in terms of the other parts, what part does narrative mm. and personal narrative have to do with, yeah. you know, rationality and, and decision-making? And, yeah. yeah, why is that important? So Alex is great. <laughs> um, Alex grew up as a very Oxbridge fancy, like toffee-nosed, elbow-patched, upper-class English gentleman and he liked rolling hills and candlelit dinners with his family on like an oak table. Um, And I say in the book, like, his best friend is Roger and Roger is a horse. (laughs) Um, And, you know, he just had this whole, like, life, like, worked out for himself. And then this TV show called Faking It came into his life and the premise of Faking It was... We're going to take people with very archetypical identities and train them to do something that is the exact photo negative of that identity. So they took like a house painter and they made him a conceptual artist. They took someone who like, um, you know, served drinks on a ferry and turned her into like an actual like yacht sailor. Uh, really, really fascinating things. And in Alex's case, they came to him and they said, do you want to be part of a transformative experience? And they didn't tell him what it was. And he, at 19, sort of signed on the dotted line. And then he said to me, like, it was too late then, like, I couldn't go back. And what they trained him in was they were going to make him be a bouncer in the east end of London, which is, like, rough at the best of times. But this was at the peak of the 2000 European Football Championships. So it was a whole lot of really drunk people. And they made him get a new accent, get a new haircut, get a new way of walking, have a completely different identity where he could pass as... A bouncer from Tottenham and you know I'll, I'll conceal whether he succeeded or not but on the way back from that experience on the train back to his own house he sort of started thinking to himself I don't know which of these identities I've been faking and that's where the narrative comes in for me as a philosopher is you know he had had this story about who he was that he'd been acting out and it put him in a funny position where in fact it was responsible of him to believe that he was like that because all the evidence suggested that he was like that you know like that was indeed how he acted and those were indeed the things that he did so the inference that I'm this kind of person is a perfectly good inference but the reason that evidence was there in the first place was that he was acting from the belief that he was this kind of person so you think you're a certain sort of way you act in that way and then when you wonder what kind of person you are you look around at your life and you see evidence that suggests that you are the kind of person you've always thought you are and round and round we go and what was so interesting about Alex's case was you know that's a moment where the narrative broke that's a moment where he got a thing that very few of us ever will get which is access to what we would be like were it not for who we already think we are and I think it illuminated for me you know it was a funny kind of thing because there were sort of three tiers of narrative going on in this I liked I hope I did this in the chapter but I liked that it was a story about someone who was dealing with their own story and then I'm writing that story into a story in a book about stories and in my own career having very much focused on telling stories about other people it was like and then also in the background, he's on a reality TV show, so they've kind of made him into a story. It was just like stories on stories on <laughs> stories. And the story became about how treacherous stories can be and how when we act in certain ways on the basis of the narratives that we already believe, you know, that that can undo our rationality. It seems reasonable, but in fact puts us in a position where the the very self that we're thinking with is a, is a weird self. And it really does bring up a lot of the current arguments and the current cultural things that are in the zeitgeist at the moment about being your true self, being authentic to who you are, 
what happens when you actually maybe, and as you say, Alex wasn't looking for a life change and he didn't think there was something off, like he wasn't going, oh, something's just not sitting right with my life. And then this happens. You would have assumed that someone who had that realisation would have already been on a bit of a a journey, so to speak, to have a a kind of inkling that something wasn't right in their life. And you say that if there is no standing real self waiting to be found, then it's very hard to understand how we could reason ourselves into seeing it. And I mean, that's a big mind explosion in a way. (laughs) It was perhaps reassuring that maybe there isn't some authentic real true self that yeah. you just need the special insight to find and then all the things in your life will click into focus yeah, no. yeah. you and make you can't, it you don't discover it yeah you can't like reason yourself into or rationalize yeah. yourself into what am i really yeah i i think that's right i mean obviously i think that's right <laughs> that thesis I landed on. um i totally think that's right i think that it's very easy to think that the self, just like everything else in the world, has a standing truth that we can discover if we look hard enough. But of course, the thing that's funny about that in the case of the self is that, you know, you make the thing that you're trying to get evidence about. And I think it's kind of liberating to think, well, if instead of discovering it, I'm making it, then I can stop looking so hard. It reminded me of existentialist philosophy because it was really just like existence precedes essence, which is essentially like you're not born a coward. Yeah. You have cowardly actions or behaviors Mm -hmm. that can accumulate and you know you look like a coward but you can still change course yeah yeah, totally I think that's one of the most liberating parts of philosophy for me yeah yeah so we're gonna have to wrap it up obviously we've just scratched the surface which is great so people can then do more (laughs) research and thinking by reading this book which is called stop being reasonable but just to close out I guess now that you are you have been thinking deeply about rationality and Mm. evidence are there things that have changed for you in the way that you think about life and rational argument yeah yeah yeah, there have been I I think it was important for me to realize that you know I spent a lot of my life having arguments with people in personal settings where they would tell me that I was like debating too much and I remember always being like it's just because you like your argument isn't good if your argument was good you would be less afraid of arguing it but now I feel like you know they weren't saying like I'm scared because you're better at arguing than me they were saying like stop treating this like it's just an argument you know like there are people involved here and you got to attend to them as well as the arguments you're trying to make and that was I think I'm less of a bad person now that I realized that (laughs) (laughs) it's it's so true that there's all of these human elements that are hard to pin down sometimes you can't even name them and they're not always consistent between people and so Mm -hmm. yeah you can't have this formulaic approach to something which is not even close to totally experience that way totally and then like you fail to make them like you fail in your argument you fail to bring either of you closer together or closer to the truth and then you walk like it's so easy to just walk away and be like oh that's on them like they were so irrational that whole time and it's like no it's only you you know like it's like you failed to communicate you failed to persuade someone you failed to reach someone and it's not on them that's a failing of yours Mm. and what comes to mind is the federal election (laughs) yeah yeah let's not (laughs) no Eleanor, it's been fantastic to Thank speak you with so you much. and congratulations. Thank you very much. I've been speaking with Eleanor Gordon-Smith, who is a writer and radio producer, and she's the author of a book, Stop Being Reasonable, which is out through New South Books. I'm Amy Mullins, and you've been listening to the Uncommon Sense podcast. Uncommon Sense is a radio show broadcast on 3RRR FM in Melbourne every Tuesday between 9am and 12pm.